Hello, I'm Graham King and welcome to Headbolt, a podcast in which I speak to interesting people about cars. This week my guest is the face and voice of special stage rally coverage on TV, the Spinning Wheels podcast. He's just released a documentary about the Clan Crusader and he works a day job as circuit manager at Cadwell Park, so God knows how he's found time to talk to me. Paul Woodford. How are you doing? Hello, Graham. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Good to speak to you. It's a while. I think the last time I saw you was at Donington Park. Yeah, yeah. Um, for, for the benefit of uh, listeners, we have a bit of shared history, me and Paul. Um, we may get into it if we're feeling in the mood for risking a lawsuit. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we most recently met up at Donington Park, um, ju- just for a quick chat. But the time before that uh, was we went to see a recording of the Grand Tour together. Um, the first series, I think it was the uh, re- second recording at Whitby. It was, uh, it was wicked. What a day that was. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. I, I entered the um, ticket ballot um, and, and got a pair of tickets. Um, I have to say, Paul wasn't my first choice to take, but the, uh, the, my first choice uh, couldn't arrange childcare. Um, so I thought, who else do I know? Um, Allegedly, your... she was a lot prettier than I was. But oh yes, definitely, definitely. But uh, yeah, Paul. Uh, Paul was the other person I knew into cars in Yorkshire, so I, uh, I gave him a shout, and we went to see it together. Yeah, and it was a really good day. It was very good. Best day I've ever been on. <laughs> well, that that's kind of sad then. <laughs> yeah, no, it was. It was. It was wicked. And um, anyone who says that those three are contrived and it's all scripted. Um, we're talking, of course, to Jeremy Clarkson, Richard Hammond, James May. Off camera, they were brilliant, weren't they? Such an Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, the, just, the, just the banter between them and the audience as well. Um, we were sort of moved around and came and went a bit because um, the tent wasn't actually as big as I thought. It was quite tight in there. And uh, they had several different setups that they had to move things around for um but yeah between times um there was a bit of banter with the audience and there was a lot that got cut out of the show as well inevitably um clarkson's language can occasionally get a bit fruity and that has to be cut out um but uh, i don't know if you're visible on camera at all but i am there's a bit where um they've got the audience around the car and i can around the audi tt yeah i can be seen pretty much right next to clarkson um i sort of didn't I'd sort of I think didn't we're realize... still next to each other, aren't we? Yeah, I I didn't really realise he was there until I heard him, and then you know you look round and he's a huge, huge man, um, six foot yeah. five. I don't know about you, but when they first walked into the tent, I took a few minutes to get over just how big Jeremy Clarkson's head is. It's enormous. Yeah, big head, big loafers. He's, yeah. um, he's, a, he's a larger than life character. I found out actually watching that show, it was the first time that it actually dawned on me that I'm growing a ball patch. I've been right. using um, caffeine shampoo ever since watching that show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it was I, good. I, it was really good. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was a very good day. It was a very good day. Um, now, I'm a bit uh, fascinated by your day job because i'm not really entirely sure what a circuit manager at a racetrack does um well 
I'm, I'm in charge of the, the operations for Cadwell Park. So if you can imagine a, a business manager, um, but in a racetrack setting. So we've got to uh, run the operation. We've got to um, prepare the administration and the operations for events. We've got a fleet to run. We've got um, upwards of 30 staff um, on a daily basis. Um, to provide HR and, uh, and other functions for. So, you know, it is just like running a business, but with a racetrack as my, my office rather than a, a, an office block. Um, and it, it's good fun. It, it's, there's a lot to it. As you know, my background was never operations. It was uh, much more media based. And mm. to a certain extent, I've taken that, that with me, but you know, the nuts and bolts of the job, the day job, as it were, um, has been, I've been there four years now. It's been eye opening. I've learned a heck of a lot. Yeah, I'm, I imagine it's uh, it can be quite stressful at times, especially when things inevitably go wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, any job can be stressful. It's um, the the stress really um, comes with putting pressure on ourselves to get things done in time. And of course, this year there's going to be more pressure than ever because we've got less time to do it. You, you've just got there's an awful lot that goes into running events, um, and especially when we've got extra things to consider that we have at the minute. Um, it can be quite stressful, but it, it's, there's a fantastic bunch of people. My management team have been there for 30 years plus. Mm. So, um, you know, the, the experience there is actually second to none in the industry. I don't think there is a more experienced set of people running a race circuit anywhere, um, which has been great. Yeah. To, uh, and it's not just um, race meetings that run at Cadwell. It's, it's track days. It's used a lot for filming as well. Yeah, Top Gear and Grand Tour, talking to the Grand Tour, they've both been there in the last couple of years. We've got racing, rallying, um, off-road bike racing. We've got car launches. They launched the, um, the Hyundai i30N um, at the mini Nürburgring. We rebranded the place as an N, Shrine to N. Um, we did an off-road course for Hyundai as well. We did the Kia Stinger GT launch. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done a lot of car prototype testing. Um, yeah. The, the new Defender before it was released to the public came to to Cadwell Park actually that was during the first lockdown last year when the car should have gone out to the Nürburgring but of course nothing was moving between borders so um we got a lot of the testing so yeah um a whole host of different things that it's used for uh, which makes it a rich tapestry as it were but you know midweek largely it's track and test days at the minute while we ramp back up we've only just started this week um a lot of long hours for everyone to get ready so you said fascinating is probably the right word. It is a fascinating place to be on a, on a, any given day, really. Yeah, and it's an amazing circuit as well. You've, you've already mentioned it's referred to as the mini Nürburgring because it's uh, up and down and r- tight corners and fast bits, and it, it's a really varied circuit. Yeah, you've got the, the sort of wide open sweeping club circuit and then you're down into the woodland section through the trees, which is very reminiscent of the Nürburgring um, back in the olden days, as you know, as recently as the really the early 90s, but really mid, mid 80s. Um, really, when you think about it, it was very, very narrow through there, big banks either side of the track and some dramatic looking photos. Um, but it's it's a unique circuit. You You could never get away with building a circuit like that now because of course they're all designed um on flat pieces of land pretty much and um they all follow a similar sort of theme these days so the, the old circuits of which in motorsport vision the group that cadwell's part of were lucky to have you know brands hatch alton park cadwell donnington park snetterton those circuits have real character that you don't find anymore in race circuits and i think that's why people enjoy those circuits so much because they're not just an airfield with 
you know, a, a designed track. It's been designed over the years. 1934, it first opened as a, an eighth of a mile downhill chalk circuit round in a circle, basically around an old manor house. And then by 1962, it turned into the 2.25 mile circuit it is now. And just it had been built out of the landscape, really. Every time they extended it, they had to follow the, um, the landscape. It's very chalky there and the limestone um, is very hard. So they, you know, they've never got the chance to actually design the track as someone would have designed it, which makes it thrilling. Mm. Did you have uh, much personal history with the place before you started working there? Because you're reasonably local to Cadwell. Yeah, it was um, that and Croft. I was sort of equidistant between. So as a as a kid, much more rallying than anything else for me. Um, I would find myself at Cadwell Park. In fact, the first time I visited was when I was three years old. Um, there's a funny picture of me next to a 6R4 looking particularly excited, a Metro 6R4, one of my favourite cars. And, um, you know, I still get excited still at Cadwell Park when the, the cars and the bikes come out now. So, yeah, I've been going there over the years. I've taken my kids there. I've presented TV shows from there. Um, I've never actually competed there, which is um, the one thing I've not done at Cadwell Park now. But I'll probably have to add that, won't I? I've done my race licence there, so I'm halfway there. Yeah. There was an unfortunate incident um, over lockdown that did get out into the uh, media because two of the circuit cars got stolen, unfortunately, Mm. which struck me as a stupid thing to do because they're such distinct cars. Yeah, that was was a rough night, actually. It was about quarter past midnight. Um, I got a call from my assistant manager. I live about 50 minutes out from the circuit, so I'm not first call for the alarm system. but we have a police response. So I just got a call from him to say, right, um, confirmed activation on the alarm. The system's gone down. We've got no comms on site at all. And the police are on the way. So meet me there. So um, out we went and yeah, they'd, um, they'd trashed the office and uh, taken two of the brand new BMWs that I'd literally just brought back from Brands Hatch the day before. Um, a brand new BMW M2 40i safety car all branded up with the lights on and mm-hmm. um, a full liveried medical car, which luckily, which is an X5, which... Um, thankfully we hadn't actually had chance because it was brand new um to put any of the kit in so mm. not, none of the medical kit was inside which um you know you've got to be thankful for small mercies but with the um tenacity i've got to say and the, the help and the fantastic work of lincolnshire police we got them back yeah with a bit of collaboration with bmw and with derbyshire police we have both cars as we speak being prepped they've been to bmw they've been re-prepped there there wasn't any real damage to talk of they, they were getting prepared for being sold on or whatever and they're, they're now back at bedford autodrome getting reprepped with delivery and light bars on the roof and then we'll be picking those up in the next couple of weeks excellent excellent um so uh, what does uh, this year hold at cadwell obviously you've mentioned there's there's a lot of testing um how's the race program looking it's really full. Um, we had to cancel the first couple of events, which are the weekend just gone and the weekend coming, um, just because it was just a bit too soon with the restrictions as they are, um, because they're issuing one-day permits to begin with. But once we get past that into the rest of April, it's busy back-to-back pretty much for most of the season. Um, we've got the British Superbikes back in August, which we missed last year because of the COVID restrictions. They had to change the way the championship ran, and it's a it's a iconic part of the championship so to have super bikes over the mountain in the air at Cadwell Park will be once again a, a site that will um, be synonymous with the 2021 series and hopefully by August if the government roadmap is to be both believed and have had faith in we'll have fans back in some kind of numbers if not full numbers so looking forward to that because the place is much better when there's a lot of people there 
Mm. And uh, what have, uh, have have you got any sort of longer range plans for the place? Any improvements in the pipeline? Any sort of big events you're chasing? Um, well, we did. We spent a huge amount of money. Literally, we finished the new paddock there. Anyone who knows Cadwell Park from the last few years or from any time really knows that the one of its biggest Achilles heels is the lack of paddock space it's very grassy it's in the past i remember when i was a kid being very muddy luckily it's not very muddy anymore but there still wasn't a lot of paddock space um so we spent a huge amount of money invested in new paddock new paddock office buildings um and then we went into lockdown um would jonathan palmer have wanted to spend all that money um had he known what was coming absolutely not is he pleased that we did yes because we've managed to to grow the place in terms of the race events um we've also managed to extend the grid sizes as well so we can get a few more different car races there which we weren't able to do before so um in terms of investment and plans for the place anything that we had longer term of course has been put on hold a little bit while we get through what's going on right now but in terms of events we're always chasing the next big thing as it were and i think the big thing at the minute is historic stuff it's just become so big um and at the 80th celebrations in um 2014 there was a huge um historic event with cars and bikes and i think we need to emulate that in some way shape or form in the next few years we were planning on doing it this year but obviously with what's gone on things got curtailed but historics is is really where it's at for big family events um but we're growing all of them the rally is big we get the fireworks and uh, the transformers in for the rally at the end of the year and it's a big family do i'm big on family so my my personal kind of want and, and wish not just for cadwell park but for motorsport generally is to to inspire younger people again because we you know you look at the age of people in motor clubs and everyone's getting older the the kind of young person going out to do 12 car rallies and navigational tabletops sadly has gone and we're losing those skills with it um and as a result motor clubs are suffering so we need to get families back in and we need to get young people back engaged and uh, one of the things I've, i'm i'm dead keen on doing and i, I got the budget and the they go ahead to do it but again before all this stuff hit um he's got a racing car or a rally car that we can take around to schools as a bit of a roadshow and we've done it with a few other people's cars and it's gone down so well um so we've got a car that's ready to go really at bedford uh, an old single seater which um hopefully we'll we'll get that project off the ground and we'll go around and introduce a few new people to um to motor racing because there's a whole world to be discovered you know if you live a life that is inspired by motor racing and cars and being generally a petrol head. There's so much to discover and you, you spend your life excited. I think as a puppy dog, if I wasn't into cars, I wouldn't walk down the street and be as excited when I see a classic car coming down the road, or I wouldn't go to an event and feel a, a, a feeling in my bones when I hear the first race engine kind of revving up. And I think that's a, it's a gift that I've been given as I'm into cars and bikes and I want to give it to someone else, you know? Yeah. I think it really is vital to get the next generation involved in motorsport because um it can be it can seem so remote but i have to say i mean s some of the um uh purist racing fans can get a bit sniffy about the more family orientated meetings there are a fair few about in the country but i have to say one of the best i've ever been to is the uh bonfire night truck racing meeting at brands hatch which is really family orientated i mean kids love racing trucks anyway because you know they're, they're big trucks that go fast um and with all the side shows and the big fireworks display afterwards you know it's a full day thing uh, much more than most race meetings are and it, it you know the atmosphere is amazing it the, the circuit looks amazing the racing's awesome the racing doesn't suffer for it 
So um, the, it's an incredible the, event. Yeah, I've, I've been lucky the last few years um, to actually host the event as the presenter. So I've done the fireworks switch on with the school competition winners at the truck fest. And um, I've then hosted stuff in the, in the big top with mm. Ed Sheeran um, tribute act. And uh, we had circus tricks and stuff going on during the day. But I have to say, if you enjoyed that event, there's one event, who, the best event I think that happens in this country, any kind of motorsport event is speed fest at Brands Hatch. Yeah. It's the um, Euro NASCAR series, which I mean, the best thing you, the closest thing you're going to get to watching NASCAR in the States, if you haven't gone to the States, is watching Euro NASCAR in this country at Brands. It is just phenomenal. And they get some huge names over. Bobby Libonte was there, Gilles, uh, Jacques Villeneuve, Jacques Villeneuve um, at the last meeting. But it's a full American car fest. So you've mm. got uh, V8 racing cars in between the support races. You've got uh, muscle cars everywhere. You've got American police cars, film cars, Ecto-1, my hero car as a kid <laughs> there um, in the paddock. Um, and it's just, it's the best. I, I shouldn't be saying that about a circuit other than my own, I know. But it is the best motorsport event that I have ever been to. It's just, there's so much going on. And the guys there put so much hard work into it. Again, I've been lucky enough to um, present the off-track side of the the event um, for brands as, for my colleagues there, and it's it's just stunning. It, it's just brilliant. I can't wait till we can get back to doing that because I missed it last year. Yeah. Now we've alluded to it, alluded to it a few times. Parallel to your various day jobs, you have had a fairly lengthy career in uh, the media, both um, uh, in front of the camera and I think behind as well. Um, where did that start? That's, that's what I've always wanted to do. That was my dream as a kid. Um, going back to Clarkson and co top gear to be a top gear presenter, as you know, from when we worked together previously, that was kind of the big dream. Um, and when I was at uni, I was doing drama and script writing and, uh, I used to write for the classic, for the car mags, the classic Ford, um, total Vox or a lot of, um, unity media and performance, um, media publications. And it was, it was good fun. I was mixing the things I loved doing. And then when I left uni, there was um, an advert for somebody who was going to be producing some rally TV stuff. It was actually off-road racing at that point. It was like big group B cars turned into off-road beasts. Um, and they said they wanted someone to do the voiceover and present it possibly. Um, they couldn't pay anything, but would someone be interested in doing an audition? So I went for an audition. Um, and the deal was you do a bit of voiceover and you get some free DVDs, which was fine i had to watch them with the sound off to begin with it takes a bit of getting used to yeah um but that was how it started really and i became friends with with wayne goldring the producer there and then very soon after that we got the deal for the btrda which we actually had no idea how i remember sat in a field in radnor forest and we were camping over we sleeping in our cars and um we had no idea how we were going to do this we had no cameramen we were doing it on a, a proper shoestring um and the budget came with that we got the sponsorship and um you know that was the rest was history as they say but it, it started there and it's led from there to presenting the british rally championship a couple of years ago i've presented the wrc at wales rally gb live on bg sport and um you know i've been involved in some of my favorite rallies in the country and i've been to the isle of man for the manx rally and presented that and it's it's been a real adventure and i've done it with people who because i was there from the start with them have called friends and we're still friends. We, we're not doing an awful lot at the minute, as you know, but um, we've got a, a Facebook messenger group and, um, you know, we talk to each other every day and there's plans to get back out there. We've got um, series that need covering and we've got coverage deals in place ready for when this all 
blows over. So um, including the Motorsport New Circuit Championship, which of course um, takes place at the circuits at MSV and beyond. But um, I started doing the coverage for that. I took a bit of a sabbatical when they moved away from the company and um, now they're back. So once that gets off the ground, I'll be back involved there, which I'm delighted about. But yeah, it was just something I'd always wanted to do. It was a great way in. From there, I ended up getting um, commercial radio jobs presenting um, Yorkshire Coast Radio and KCFM in Hull. And um, again, radio presenting felt like it was part of the the big dream and the bubble bursts eventually, I guess. So you just got to do as much as you can, as long as you can, while you've got the energy, the motivation and, and the time really. And I have to say, I've got a pretty understanding wife. <laughs> Always helps. Yeah. I've got three kids as well. So it's, um, it's, everything just feels like a one big juggle to the next really. Cause I make all those films on YouTube just for fun, really. Um, and they take a lot of work as you know, when you're making videos, I've never actually worked behind the camera though. That that's, um, not something I ever really wanted to do. The fact that I make the films and produce them and shoot them as well as present them, um, is really more a necessity than, than a dream. I think when we worked together at only motors all those years ago, I was very much in front of the camera and script writing at that point. I used to stay away completely from the, uh, the camera and production side of things. You just mentioned uh, making films on YouTube, um, and I mentioned it in your introduction. You've uh, just released a documentary about the uh, Clan Crusader, a sort of weird little kit car sports car that I think you've got uh, quite a bit of history with. Uh, what, 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 uh, what came up there? Um, yeah, you say history. I've only owned the car since um, September last year, but I've always been fascinated by them because I like cars that have a good story. And obviously being a, a rally and a, a racing fan, it has to have a good motorsport story, a bit of heritage as well. Now, the Clan Crusade is actually not a kit car. Like most 70s low-volume cars, you could buy it in build-at-home format so you could get rid of the VAT, but it was a factory-built car. Um, and there was a bunch of Lotus engineers in 1969 who decided that they could do a better job. Colin Chapman was being a bit controlling. Uh, so legendary designer John Frailing, Frailing uh, teamed up with Paul Husser and uh, Brian Luff, and they started the Clan Motor Company. They actually designed the original, um, what would be the first full composite monocoque sports car ever made. The, the way that they make, you know, top-end supercars now, that's how the Clan was made. And they made it in the Cross and Blackwell Bait Bean factory sack room opposite the Lotus factory at Hethel wow. before they got the money for the new factory unit up in Washington in Newtown where there was funding available for new businesses. Um, so yeah, there were 315 made. Um, it had some legendary success when everyone was taking the mick really out of this little, what they saw as a plastic sports car. It was actually a, a very serious bit of kit. It was designed by, you know, people who designed some of the best Lotus Formula One cars in the world. Arthur Birchall was, um, he was the chief indie mechanic for Colin Chapman. He also ran and built and designed Graham Hill's Formula One car and Jim Clark's car. You know, these were top people that, that started this company. Um, so this car basically upset the establishment everywhere when it came second overall on its first time anyone had even heard of the Clan Crusader and it rolled into scrutineering, Roger Clark's escort and all these top cars on the Manx and um, Andy Dawson rolled this car past and it then just been passed by the FIA with a fiberglass roll cage um, the night before. It was a fascinating bit of kit. Everybody sniffing at it and looking down their noses at it. Um, and it came second only to Roger Clark's Escort on the Manx. And then a couple of weeks later, Alan Connolly went and won the Tour of Mull 
in this fairly unknown car. By that point, the world was getting quite excited. This was 1972. In 73, it entered not only the works cars in, in rallying in the motor, motoring news championship and the British championship as it was then, um, but it also entered into the mod sports racing series with Johnny Blades. And that story is, is a real kind of um, one shot, one go at it kind of um, fairy tale story. Johnny Blades, a tailor from Whitley Bay who drove an F2 Lotus 69 was offered this car um, and he went up against Lotus on the racetrack. And although that wasn't really the intention, what ended up happening was scores got settled on the racetrack because Lotus were winning everything in mod sports, which is these big wide arch flared fender um, modified production cars. And, and clan came along with Johnny blades and he retired at the end of that year, having won the Northern mod sports championship, as well as the um, championship he was running in the F2 car, ex Fittipaldi car. And, uh, you know, the, the car was revolutionary and it went on to win in a few hands after that. But that, that one year just, it, the story inspired me. Um, so I made first a smaller documentary about the rally successes, which was about seven or eight minutes long. And the reaction I got to that from not just the clan world, but also the rally world and, you know, people beyond. I mean, I got a magazine feature out, off the back of that from Complete Kit Car Magazine, for example. People got really interested in the car off the back of that film. So I thought okay, well, I'll go one better. And um, I make all my films on a mobile phone. And I thought, well, I'm going to make a full feature-length documentary. Um, I've got a quiet racetrack that I can film it at. Um, I'll learn how to do a little bit of CGI and bring the cars back to life, almost, um, which I did. And it took a long time to do to learn how to do all of that on a phone. Um, and I made a 25-minute documentary about the story of the clan, the works, Clan Crusader and Johnny Blades. And at the end of that year, both Clan and Johnny Blades packed it in clan motor company went bust and johnny retired from racing to look after his young family and run the business and you know they'd made history and it's, it's just it's the biggest thing i've ever worked on and it's probably one of the proudest things that i've ever made because i kind of proved to myself that i could do it yeah what's it like actually owning one oh, it's fun um it's I'm learning again. I, I used to build my own rally cars and mess with classic cars, but you know, in the intervening years, having a career and a young family to kind of concentrate on, as it were, I've, I've not really got involved and the cars I've had maybe in the garage have been much more modern stuff that hasn't needed a lot of tinkering with. Um, so I'm back to basics really and get my hands dirty and, um, you know, they're based on whether not based on, I've got Hillman Imp running gear, Hillman Imp sport engine. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's it's fun having something to play with in the garage, but I must admit, I'm not a fan of the, the oily bits. I'd rather it just work. <laughs> I'd rather just be able to drive it. So I drive yeah. it a lot, even though I've got loads of jobs need doing on it, but I, rather than spend the time doing the jobs, I'll just drive it. Um, so I'm planning on taking it to work on Sunday because we've got our first car track day of the year um, mm -hmm. on Easter Sunday. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a dawn raid in the Clan Crusader and wake my neighbours up. It's good fun. It's tiny. The, the thing is so small. I've got a picture of it, which I put on Twitter where it's parked next to a Peugeot 106 at the work car park and it's dwarfed. Wow. It looks like you could fit it in the 106 boot. <laughs> Just kind of shows how unnecessary cars have become in terms of their size. Uh, I say unnecessary. You can't, um, you can't ignore the, the safety progress of course but in terms of their actual size and bulk it's, it's just ridiculous that you can yeah. have a, a credible sports car that is just so small suzuki cappuccinos dwarf this thing yeah <laughs> yeah and the cappuccino is a tiny little thing um yes sidebar i actually have a, a sort of weird story with the suzuki cappuccino as you've mentioned it 
Um, it, it's worth telling, I think. Um, when I was 10, 1994, uh, the cappuccino had been on sale in the UK a year, 18 months or so. Um, my granddad gave me a copy of What Car, um, and there was a road test of the uh, Suzuki cappuccino in it. I vividly remember the headline image on this uh, road test was a silver cappuccino on the lock stops going sideways. Amazing image. Um, I knew nothing about it. I didn't even realize it was a tiny little thing. Um, but just that one image made it my favorite car at that particular time. My birthday was coming up. Um, and my dad, was, my dad just asked me, what's your favorite car? So I said, the Suzuki Cappuccino. I thought no more of it. Um, the day of my birthday comes around. I'm dragging my feet, leaving school. Um, I was chatting to some of my friends. My mum comes in and drags me out. That never happens. She drags me out, takes me out front. I see my granddad's car first, which, you know, I'm like, why's my granddad here? And then she says, look next to your granddad's car. And there was a, Zoo a Suzuki Cappuccino. My dad had rung the local dealer and got them to come out with a cappuccino to give me a ride for my birthday. Brilliant. Of course, they'd brought the local paper out with them, you know, good free publicity. Um, but me, uh, my dad, my brother, and our lodger at the time all got a ride in it. Um, not at the same time, though, Graham, surely? Not at the same time, no. Um, <laughs> it is a tiny car, and my dad barely fit in it. Um, yeah. That's a great story. It, it was just a great little car. I've wanted one ever since. I've never quite managed to make it happen. It's just so small. Um, yeah. There's a girl on uh, Twitter who I follow, and I, I feel terrible for not remembering her name now, but she has a Suzuki Cappuccino. Yeah. And uh, she made a model one recently over lockdown, and she was doing a progress pictures. Uh, yeah. You probably follow her, Graham. She's, I think she's a motoring journalist of some kind. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I don't fit in the clan. Yeah, it's good. It's got a sunroof. I have to sort of lay down like a Formula One driver when I'm driving it. Uh, the seating position is almost laid down just so I can fit in it. Yeah, and you're not especially tall either, so no. <laughs> it's really tiny. Yeah, it is. Just I have to say for the listeners, um, the documentaries um, about uh, the clan racing in the mod sports series, if you can, um, there is some footage of the mod sports series out there on YouTube. Do look it up. Um, I think Mod Sports is one of the great lost racing series. I saw it when I was a kid in the early 90s. It ran into the mid-90s, I think. And it yep. was basically production sports cars, uh, highly modified, uh, big wheels, big arches, very loud, very spectacular. Um, and it was just awesome to watch. Um, but the Some big names made their the name in it as well. You know, Jonathan Palmer, who um, owns Cadwell Park, a former Formula One driver, he made his name racing in Marcos in it. You've got, I think, um, there's just quite a few. There's quite a few names that came through. Brabham came through. Yeah, David Brabham from Mod Sports. Um, and it, when you look at Tony Sugden, people like that, real legends of the of motor racing, both club level and international. And it, I think there is. Um, well, you still see some of the cars now because. Of course, people are starting to dig them out of sheds and rebuild them. And um, mm. I think the, the CSCC, Classic Sports Car Club, have got a similar series now for basically Thunder Saloons and, and modified sports cars. But um, I think the BRSCC have got a, a similar series either coming back or, or is back. Um, mm. You certainly see the odd car. You certainly see the big, the odd big-winged um, Lotus Esprit or um, Hillman Imp 
with the big square arches out there yeah. on the circuit sometimes. But as you say, to have a series like that where you've got showroom gladiators, as I call them in the film, literally just modified versions of current cars that, that were stuck out there on the circuit and went wheel to wheel, there's just nothing like it anymore. No, no, which is a bit of a shame. But unfortunately, modern cars don't really lend themselves to that sort of modification for, for that kind of race series these days. No, it's all changed. It's all changed. But it, it's, that's why Historics is such big business now. Yeah, yeah. The other um, project you've had on the go recently is the uh, Spinning Wheels podcast, which you host with uh, Le Mans winning race driver Guy Smith. Um, yeah. I think you're, what, 30 episodes in now? Um, uh, not quite, yeah, nearly there, nearly there. I've listened to a fair few episodes. It's really good. It's basically talking to um, big personalities from the racing world. Um, it was a started as a, basically a lockdown project, didn't it? Yeah, I was doing a barbecue in the back garden during lockdown one, and I've missed a call from Guy. Um, and I, when I rang him back, he said, I've got an idea. And I was feeling pretty depressed and down the dumps about the whole lockdown thing at that mm. point. And um, I didn't get back to him for a few days. And when I eventually bothered to ring him back, he told me about it. I thought, yeah, that sounds fun. We'll do that. Um, next minute, I've, I'm sat there talking to Mark Blundell and sat in my garage in my little makeshift studio. Um, and then we're talking to people like Stefan Johansson, Abby Eaton, both people that Guy and I know, but then people we don't know or I don't know and have never dreamed that I'd be talking to from my, my garage. So, yeah, it's been quite – that's been – I use the word adventure a lot. I like to think of life as a collection of adventures, and that's certainly been one of them. We've got yeah. Emmanuel Piro um, due on – it was meant to be this Thursday, but something's come up at work, so that's going to be next week now. But, yeah, so Piro is next, of course, F1 and sports car legend. Yeah, um, there's been some really good ones. The 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 one I listened to um, most recently was uh, John Cleland, who's a never short a of a good story. Um, yeah, he's he's a real hero of mine. So to speak to him, I mean, I've interviewed him for TV as well. Um, he used to present the HSCC, including the Super Touring series for TV, and so I, I was lucky enough to meet him then with his Vectra Touring car. But what a legend he is! Yeah, so funny. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think one of the things that always amuses me about him is because he was a works Vauxhall driver, but a Volvo dealer, which seems like a massive conflict of interest. But Yeah, I'm not sure it was always a Volvo dealer, was it? But certainly in the, the latter years when he was Vauxhall, it was. Um, yeah, as you say, and he's still got the Vauxhall Vectra Super Tourer today, which he uses. And um, he's got all the Vauxhall branded gear and teamwear yeah. and stuff, which as you say it's a real fun conflict i don't think volvo mine because he sells a lot of cars so yeah <laughs> but uh i mean you you you've got some really good stories out of people stuff i've never heard before yeah um, likewise the thing that you that, that's that was the reason really that i got involved because guys are a professional racing driver and racing drivers when they start talking to each other have the habit of just talking about the the races and the results and it's fascinating stuff and there's nothing like there was a particular episode recently where guy was oh, who were we talking to i think it was oliver gavin maybe um, mm. and guy was talking about left foot braking and how he was a right foot breaker and a heel and toe and it, just hearing a racing driver talk in those terms it, for me is fascinating because it seems yeah. like you don't normally get um but sometimes they need bringing back 
down to our level as in mere mortals that you know are not built with the physique of a racing driver and don't drive these these wonderful racing cars and they need to just explain things in, in human terms so for example talking to um Derek Bell about the filming of Le Mans you know he was, mm. he was very much on the technical side and I said no how did it feel when you were racing that car mm. on that track with Steve McQueen, knowing that the guy in front is Steve McQueen. And he's it, getting that feel for what went on out of people. You know, how does it feel, Guy, crossing the finish line at Le Mans for Bentley, having brought that, that mark back to the top of Le Mans? How, how does it feel, Stefan Johansson, climbing into a race car opposite um, you know, Alan Prost and, and people like that, and, and knowing that you know, you've got to go out there and those sort of stories and those sort of moments bringing those to life i think is what i'm passionate about in that in that particular series and that's how a guy and i i think seemed to work quite well because he's got the contacts and he he knows racing like no one else i know and he's got you know so many great stories and and i'm a motor racing enthusiast and you know sometimes i'll ask a question that is just so blatantly simple that Guy wouldn't have thought to ask it because he's a racing driver and he's been there. He knows what it feels like. But if you've never sat in one of those cars, if you've never tested a Formula One car like Guy has for Williams, you don't know what it feels like. So I quite like asking those questions and, and making them think a little bit. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, let's say, nearly 30 episodes on there now. Rally drivers, racing drivers, current, um, you know, used to drive decades ago. Um, if, yeah, if one, there's one really good one. Talking about the Grand Tourers we work, Abby Eaton was our mm. second guest. Mike Simpson kicked us off, um, works Ginetta driver and also um, uh, works as head of sales and business for, for Ginetta. But Abby Eaton was number two. And she, of course, is the Grand Tour, was the Grand Tour test driver when they were running the test driver program. And she tells a, a wonderful tale of how that all came about and how she did the screen test. And it turned up with this array of bizarre kind of um, eclectic sports cars and supercars to blatter around an old airfield, which became the um, Ebola drone that they had. And it's uh, just stories like that, which you don't hear. You know, they never did a making of the Grand Tour. Mm. So, um, yeah, I'm pleased to be able to sort of tell those stories yeah I, I thoroughly recommend listening to it once you've finished listening to this go and find uh spinning wheels um it's it's well worth a listen um now as a motorsport fan uh thankfully the 2021 season is now kicking off um are you watching anything in particular this year um so I, I watch a bit of everything when it comes to motorsport i'm not football i'm not cricket rugby anything like that but if it's motorsport of any kind motor gp formula one i'm there and i'll usually plan my life around it if i've possibly got time although now we're starting back at the circuit i'm probably not gonna have much time but i've promised myself that i will because i'm a massive nascar fan mm. uh, but because of the time of the races and because there are just so many of them i tend to sort of get blase i'll start with the daytona 500 and i'll watch the first few and then i'll watch maybe a few at the back end of the year but i promised myself and my eldest son who's 13 that we'll watch more nascar this year and we'll actually watch them live so um, I've managed, I think, four so far this season following the Daytona. Um, but I missed the, the dirt one that they've just done at Bristol, where they turned the place into a dirt racing track as a throwback to the heritage of NASCAR. It was on last night. I tuned in on Sunday night thinking it was going to be that, and it wasn't. It was on back on tarmac, and I thought, that's strange, because you know, they've already done a test on the dirt. Um, but yeah, so they cleared the place out, did it on tarm- the race on tarmac, and they did a cup race last night on the dirt, which I've watched the highlights of, and it's just amazing. So yeah, NASCAR is something I'm... I'm really big on watching as much as I can this year. Um, 
and uh, this my staple, the WRC, of course, I'll be watching mm. as much of that as well. Yeah, um, I'm keeping an eye out for um, Extreme E, which starts in a week yes. or two. Um, that that's looking like it's going to be a really interesting series. Not just the fact that you know it's electric rally cars, but the uh, the sort of less lesser uh, lesser used uh, locations they go into um, deserts, jungles. They're going up into the Arctic, and um, there's a really diverse mixture of drivers, racers rally drivers, rally cross drivers, um, and of course, um, half the drivers are women as well. Um, so It's, it's a fascinating be... concept as well, isn't it? Because not only are they racing in areas of the globe where profile needs to be raised about the um, climate issues facing those places, uh, from glaciers to, to, to deserts, um, they're also, it's a completely carbon, I, th- I think it's, it's beyond carbon neutral, I mm. think it's um, carbon negative, the project. Um, and that's why people like Lewis Hamilton have got involved with it. But the the ship that they used is an old, um, correct me if I'm wrong, an old Navy frigate, which has Something been converted. Like it's it's not it's not electric as you'd expect with the concept of the series. Not quite there yet with the the technology, but it's it's running certain fuels and um, it's doing certain things along the way uh, that that create this kind of carbon negative footprint. Yeah. But yeah, it's a it's a fascinating fascinating project and. The fact that the cars are all being shipped out there as we speak, and did you see the um, the Freddie Flintoff Top Gear feature with the? Uh, I didn't know. Yeah, it was, it was very good, worth checking out. But then um, you've got some some big names actually, like Jensen Button actually driving a car as well as running yeah. the team. Sebastian Loeb was was it Sebastian Loeb? I'm sure it was Sebastian Loeb was doing some testing at Donington recently in an extreme e car. Yeah, um, there's a there's a big thing growing with with electric racing cars, and I wasn't. I've, I've been a bit of a naysayer um, mm. because I think the theatre's lost somewhat. But I went to Bedford Autodrome the other day um, to pick some Donington cars up while ours get reprepped, the ones that were stolen. Um, and Don- Bedford's um, a fascinating place. It's, it's owned by MSV, who own all the circuits um, in our group. But it's the place, it's the home of Palmer Sport, the world's greatest driving experience, which really is fabulous. It's, it's got a collection of Jonathan's old Formula One cars mm. all sort of stored in in buildings and Jolien's cars and things like that. Um, but then they've got this test track there, which is used for all sorts of driving, filming, uh, some of the Mission Impossible stuff's done there and things like that. Um, and as I, as I was getting out of the car, I heard this kind of really bizarre noise, nothing I could ever heard. And I thought, is that a Formula E car I can hear? There's always something interesting going on there. So I went for an amble across to the um, the West Circuit, and sure enough, there was um, Mahindra. Um, we're testing with Alex Lynn in the Formula E car, the new car for the season. And I've never seen anything with dynamics like it. I didn't like the first Formula E car. I thought it looked awful. I didn't think mm. it did anything for the profile of the sport. But this new one just looks incredible. In fact, it looks a bit like a Batmobile, you know? Yeah. Um, and... <laughs> that's my son's it's not my, i don't always have a batmobile behind me on a podcast um <laughs> it's it's just a it's a mental mental looking car and the way it sounds is don't get me wrong it's not a v10 or even a v8 um being strung out to x tens of thousands of revs but it has a certain theater all of its own and before seeing one in the flesh i wouldn't have ever said that I, yeah. I would have been a naysayer still. So I would urge anybody who is thinking mm, there's no theatre to go and have a look. If you can get to a Formula E race, because I'm certainly going to try and get to one now. I've seen yeah. that. Um, 
don't think of the Teslas and the, the Renault Zoe's and the Nissan Leafs that you see in the street because I agree they have no theatre, no soul. But these racing cars do. Mm. Um, and, you know, anything being driven at full tilt by a works racing driver is, is incredible to watch. And these are quite dramatic, I'm yeah. pleased to say. So maybe I'm a convert, Graham. Maybe. Um, I mean, I have to say that I, I think the guy who founded Formula E and who founded uh, Extreme E as well, he did both, um, kind of has the right idea um, with this early days of electric motorsport. It has to do something different. Um, yep. extre- uh, Formula E uh, races on uh, city street circuit, cities that racing usually never goes to. Um, an extreme it's got the fan involvement, hasn't it? So you can yeah, it's got fan, the fan involvement as well. An extreme is going to locations that have have never been used for motorsport before, um, mm. and that that's what's going to get eyes on it. And they're only going to be ten minute races, there. aren't they? Because of the battery technology. So the extreme e races will literally be ten minute stages, and that's it. Yeah. So um, yeah, be interesting. Yeah, short and sweet. Hopefully, very spectacular. Hmm. Yeah. Um, right. Well, I think we'll uh, start uh, bringing this to a close. Um, I have a bit of a question and answer session that I ask every guest. Uh, so we'll run through those. Um, what was the first car you ever drove? Possibly even before you actually officially started learning how to drive. It was a BMW M5. Um, my dad worked for BMW at the time um, for head office, well, the distribution center at Thorn, and we got a new BMW all the time. And we have a family holiday home up in North Yorkshire at the um, near Dolby Forest. Mm. On, um, and so I, I went up there and uh, Langdale End and drove it on an old RAC rally stage. And I was, I was like 12 or 13 at the time, I think. That that's pretty senior. That is. I, I didn't get out of first gear. He wouldn't let me go right. above about fifteen miles an hour. So I've got to come clear. I've got to come clean on that. And I didn't hoon this brand new BMW M5 along this um, forest stage, Bickley mm. Forest, as it as it was known back in the day. But I still drove a BMW M5 when I was that age down a forest track. Was was that an E39? It was probably. Yeah, one. awesome car. I think it was an M5. Is that an M5 or an M535 Sport or something? One of the sports yeah. ones, anyway. Well, yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. Told all my mates when I got back to school, I'd driven a BMW M5 on a rally stage, and of course, no one believed me. Yeah, yeah. And well, I mean, these days you'd probably have video evidence, but not not back this then. True. I probably went to school and told them I'd driven it 100 miles an hour or something. Though. Yeah, yeah. Always, always got to, uh, always got to make it sound more dramatic than it actually was. Yeah. Um, where are your favourite roads in the UK? Uh well, probably North Yorkshire, um, because I grew up going around there and I, I love North Yorkshire. The roads to Cadwell are, are pretty good, um, but recently I've really got into the roads to Wales, particularly to Anglesey, actually. If you, mm. if you do the, the trip over to Anglesey, um, there are some incredible roads over there and the scenery is it's just stunning. Um, I remember stopping a few times and just stopping and standing and looking at the scenery um so yeah north yorkshire is kind of where my heart lies when it comes to driving and roads but um you know i spend a lot of time in wales with the rallying or usually would um and they're pretty spectacular yeah 
Um, what's your favourite? Um, well, I've, I've put this on my notes as what's your favourite car film, but I really mean what's your favourite film with cars in it? You know, that feature heavily. It may just be like a really good car chase. Um, it's got to be Days of Thunder, I think. Um, I know it's a bit corny, but um, I just love that film. I've, we've even named one of our children Cole after Cole Trickle. Wow. Um, there's something about Days of Thunder which. Um, it kind of inspired me as a kid, the story. And um, yeah, I still love it now. I can watch it over and over again. I know every line. Don't ever watch Days of Thunder with me because I'll bore you to death. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, was, I would definitely say Days of Thunder. Yeah, and I, it, it does get quite badly maligned Days of Thunder because it is kind of cheesy, but... Um, That's what we liked in those days, though. Yeah. It gets maligned by today's audience because they're into something different these days. You've got to watch things with a bit of context and... Yeah, it brought NASCAR to the world as well, which you know no one really knew what NASCAR was around the world at that point. Yeah, and it was also the I think the first time that sort of car people realised that uh, Tom Cruise can actually really drive because he actually did a lot of the driving in in uh, Days of Thunder at you know not quite race speeds but very nearly. Yeah, he was driving. Um in a series called Can-Am, I think, at the time. Mm. Uh, there was a making-of documentary, actually, before the Daytona 500 this year. And uh, it was fascinating, because I've not heard a lot of the stories from it. But yeah, he, he got picked up doing that. He'd already done uh, Top Gun. Mm. And um, so he was kind of, you know, been launched into the spotlight as an actor, but he was already racing cars. And he loved cars. And uh, it was kind of a natural fit. And it was actually him that push the concept along and mm. wanted to, to get it made and he sat there with Jerry Bruckheimer and, said that, and Don Simpson and said that let's just go around to, to all these places after all the NASCAR races and let's just you know talk to people and get the stories and all of the characters and, are based on real people in NASCAR at that time Harry Hogg is a bloke who was doing just that job and had pretty much the same story to tell as Harry in a film in real life I can't remember the guy's name but it's not far off Harry Hogg I think um, they were all based on people which is yeah. fascinating as well yeah um is there uh one car you don't get that everyone else seems to love but you just don't get uh there are quite a few actually um oh, i wish you'd given me a chance to think about this one because i could come <laughs> up with a really really good one um i think i would say a tesla because i am starting to get the ev thing and i do i, well, I do get it and i understand the significance of it and i i quite like evs I don't quite understand why people aspire so much for a Tesla when I think they look awful. Mm. I know they're fast and I know technology is good, but I just, I just think they look dull. So yeah, probably, probably a Tesla. Yeah. I can't, I can't remember that we had one uh, on Tesla only motors. I can't remember if you we did. I was there. Yeah, it. it was model S. I didn't do yeah. the review on it, but I did drive it. Yeah. They're fantastic. Epic pieces of machinery, but people hold them up as I mean, my, my 13 year old is like, Oh, a Tesla, you know, he'll say that as a Ferrari four, five, eight passes the other way. I'm like, but, mm. but look at it. It's got wheels that look like they've been made for a toy car. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I, I kind of agree. Um, give me a BMW to... i8 any day. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Having bad, bad mouthed, uh, Tesla, we're going to have to be uh, prepared to get a lot of stick on, uh, on Twitter now, but, Hey ho, never mind. No, I get, I get Tesla. I just, I just don't quite understand the hype around the aspirations compared to other EVs. That's all. Yeah, I mean, out of the current crop, I'd much rather have a Porsche Taycan, personally. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, what I don't know how much attention you really pay to new cars, but uh, what do you think is the most complete car currently on sale? The car that sort of does everything. Um, for me, it's the Focus RS. I know they don't do an RS in the current Focus, so it would have to be the ST. Um, I drive a 2016 model Focus ST. Mm. It's the second one I've had. The first one met a bit of a grisly end. Um, and I just don't think another car on the road does anything better than a sporting Ford mm. in, in a real sense. If you're a petrol head, a, a hairy chested petrol head in a, in a Jeremy Clarkson sense, which I think I am deep down. I'd like to think I'm yeah. a bit more sophisticated. I don't think I really am. Um, it's got to be a fast forward and the focus. I just love the ST and I think the new ST looks fabulous as well. I think it's got all the kit. It handles fantastically. It drives beautiful. I can't think of a car that I'd want to replace my ST with other mm. than the new ST. And if they bring an RS out in, in that, then, um, you know, I think I'd probably really want one of those, but the, you know, the, I like rally homologation cars. So the Yaris, um, is pretty cool. The GR Yaris, mm. GR four, whatever they call it. Like G, the uh, I think it's just GR Yaris. Yeah. But it's got GR four on the back, just like the old Toyota GT four on the badge. Uh, which is really cool. So I, 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 quite, cool. I quite like that. Um, I've not played in one and I've, probably better not because yeah try to stay away from things that i can't afford you know yeah 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 i try and do the same because you know every time i look through a car magazine i spend about 10 million pounds yeah yeah um but yeah if, if ford bring a focus st out then um you know i think i'm gonna have to start selling body parts or something yeah yeah um and finally um you uh, one car to keep forever you can have sort of something more sensible but one car Unlimited budget, you're keeping it for the rest of your life. A Mark II Cortina Lotus. Mark II? Yes. My first rally car was a Mark II Cortina GT. Uh, it's a 1500 Cosworth engined one. Um, Saluki bronze, kind of works replica-ish of the Lotus that won 1966 Gulf Swedish Rally. Um, and I just, from that moment on, the Mark II Cortina was the car for me when it came to classic Fords. So yeah, mm. Mark II, Lotus Cortina, preferably, well, I was going to say red, um, quite like the, them in plain silver as well. But if I had to, I'd, I'd go with the, uh, the white with the green stripe. Yeah. Good choice. And, uh, people kind of forget about the Mark II Lotus Cortina because the, uh, the Mark one, um, was yeah. so huge and the Mark II was fairly short lived and, not it wasn't really as successful, successful and the body shell wasn't very strong. It used to banana when it landed on jumps and things like that. Yeah. So um, it never quite had the legendary status that the Mark one had because that used to win world rallies and touring car races and was driven by some of the best names in the business. Um, but mind you, so was the Mark two, um, but it just wasn't quite as legendary at the time. But now I just, I think it's because I'd have to have a series one as well with the, the extra auxiliary dials on top of the dash on kind of stuck on because they'd forgotten about it um, rather mm. than the later ones with them into the dash a bit like the, um, the later GTs. But um, yeah, it can be a GT to be honest. It just has to be a two door Mark II Cortina, either a GT or a Lotus. And I'd, I'd keep that forever. Excellent. I really want a 1600 E. I nearly bought one at one stage. Yeah, I, I, I like any Mark II Cortina, but I probably wouldn't keep the 1600E forever. Yeah. Okay, then. Well, I think we'll uh, bring it to a close there. Um, we managed to get through that without getting 
dragged into a long this soliloquy about only motors that'll have to be a discussion that waits for another day yeah so, I, I probably don't want to go back there <laughs> <laughs> so um i'd like to say thanks to my guest paul woodford uh where can people find you on social media the internet i'm, I'm on every i try to be on everything everything except the, the dance one whatever that's called tiktok i don't get that no. don't get that I'm on Twitter at Paul Woodford 84. I'm on Facebook. You can, I've got a clan crusader page. I've got car films. Um, yeah, yeah. If you're on Twitter and you search for Paul Woodford, they'll probably come up and there's probably a clan crusader not far behind me. Excellent. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Headbolts, the same name as this podcast. And please do join me again next week when I'll be talking to a motoring journalist and editor of Strada magazine that's going to be launching shortly. Nathan Chadwick. Thanks for listening.